When you became a Christian, God created an altogether new nature and He placed it inside of you. That's why the Bible says you are a new creation. You are a new you. And you are not the person you used to be. In fact, in the book of Ephesians already, we've seen that you were dead in trespasses and sins, without Christ, without hope, without God. You were a child of wrath. You had a hard, ignorant heart. Your life was futile. But now in Christ, you're alive. You've been redeemed and forgiven. You've been made holy and blameless. You have God's Spirit. You know God's will. You are one of God's children. You have an inheritance. You've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. And you have resurrection power at work in your life. And because there has been this great change, not only in your position before God, but in your very person, because you have all these riches in Christ, there's no reason for you to walk the way you used to walk. And there's no reason for you to walk the way unsaved people walk around you. You are to walk differently. And that's the exhortation Paul gives us beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4 and carrying on throughout the rest of the chapter. And he describes this walk in verses 22 and 24 to 24 as putting off and putting on. You are to put off the old man. You are to put on the new man. You are to put off the old man, all you were apart from the grace of God. And you are to put on the new man, all that you have become because of the grace of God. The picture is of putting off old clothes and putting on new clothes. You remember when Jesus raised Lazarus in John 11? Lazarus came out of the grave, but he still had a problem. He was still wearing his grave clothes. And so Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus no longer belonged to the dominion of death, so why should he be dressed like it? And you see, the same is true of a Christian. I have been brought out of death into life, but I've still got to put off those old grave clothes. I've been made a new creature in Jesus Christ, but I still have to put on my new wardrobe. And in verses 25 to 32 of chapter 4, Paul gives us some specific exhortations to help us with that. He points to five practical ways that we are to put off the old and put on the new. And before we look at them specifically, let me just mention three features common to them all. If you'll notice, in each case, there's a negative prohibition balanced by a positive command. Verse 25 says we're to put off lying, we're to put on speaking truth. Verse 26, we're to put off sinful anger, we're to put on a right response to anger. Verse 28, we're to put off stealing, we're to put off, put on working and sharing. Verse 29, we're to put off unwholesome words, we're to put on edifying words. These exhortations are not simply negative, and I like that, because as Christians, we're not simply told to do something negative, we're also told to do something positive. That's different from the law. The law characteristically was, thou shalt not. And that's different from the morality of man, because man basically presents laws as well. That's why we have, we have a uh, crusade today, say no to drugs. And my question is also always, well, what do we say yes to? There's a negative there, what's the positive? As a Christian, we're given negatives here, but we're also given a corresponding positive that we're to put on in our lives. Second thing we can notice about each one of these is that 
Paul gives us a reason for each one. For example, look at verse 25. We're to lay aside lying, we're to speak truth, and then at the end of verse 25, he says, for or because we are members of one another. And in each case, he gives us a theological reason for the exhortation. Now, why does he do that? Well, if you'll remember last week, we said that the key to our walk is the renewing of our mind. So Paul gives us a theological reason for our obedience. He ties our behavior with our belief. We have to understand the theological reason behind the action. And we have to have our minds renewed so that we can step out in these new actions. And then the third thing I'd like to observe about all, three, all of these is that in each case, they concern relationships. Our walk with God is not just some mystical thing that happens in isolation from everybody else. I can't go off to a monastery somewhere and find holiness. I don't live my life in a vacuum. This walk involves my vertical relationship with God, but it also affects my horizontal relationships with people. It's very, very practical. Now let's look at the issues one at a time. The first he deals with is lying in verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. In 1891, a man named Desjardins confessed to the murder of the Duke de Berry. Shortly afterwards, he changed his story and said that he had nothing to do with it. So when it came to trial, his defense was that he was a notorious liar. And he brought in dozens of witnesses to attest to his poor character and complete unreliability. The verdict was that Desjardins was not guilty on the basis that no one could believe a word he said. Now that's an extreme case, and yet how often have you heard people say, I can't believe a word anybody says? Because we live in a society that's based on lies. It's built into the very fabric of our society, in fact so much so that we tend to expect it. We expect politicians to lie. We expect advertisers to lie. We expect people to lie. In a USA Today poll, they reported that 58.4% of Americans said that they have called in sick to get a day off. 58.4%. Now, that's not real surprising. In fact, I would expect it to be higher than that. In fact, I probably would suggest that half the people that said they haven't were lying. <laughs> lying is built into the fabric of our society. Can you imagine what would happen if for just one day everybody told the truth? There would be an upside to that. I mean, we wouldn't have any lengthy investigations like Whitewater or the O.J. Simpson trial. But on the downside, I think we would have World War III because everything would come to light. You see, our society is based on lies. And the reason it's based on lies is because the one who is behind the system, Satan, is the father of lies. He lies about everything. He lies about right and wrong, heaven and hell, life and death. And his basic lie is to get people to believe that God is a liar. In fact, if you remember all the way back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, the very first words 
that Satan said to Eve were, has God said? You see, he casts doubt on the very words of God. And he tries to turn it around so that we would believe that God's words are not true. But you see, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I came to realize what we read at the end of verse 21, that truth is in Jesus. And when I became a believer, I came out of the domain of lies into the element of truth. So that I know the true God, I have trusted the true Messiah, I am indwelt by the true Spirit, I possess the true Word, and when I speak, my words should be words of truth. Now, even though our society seems to take lying rather lightly, let me remind you this morning that God does not. To a group of Jews who called the truth a lie and lies truth, Jesus said this in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Revelation 21.8 says, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. And so the Bible says that for the liar, his father is the devil and his destiny is hell. In fact, the very first sin that God judged in the early church was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And you remember what they did. Acts chapter 5 verse 3 says, Satan filled their hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit. And God struck them dead. And Paul says here, we who are Christians are to put that off. It may have characterized my life before I was a believer. It does characterize the world around me. But we are to walk differently. We are to speak truth. You say, well, I don't really lie. I just tell little white lies. Well, no lie is little and no lie is white. You say, well, I don't lie, I just exaggerate. Well, is your exaggeration true? Then it's a lie. It's like the fellow who gave his testimony, and every time he gave his testimony, he seemed to add something else to it. And he finally said, you know, I've given my testimony so many times, and I've added so many things, that I can't remember what the true story is now. And he lost all his credibility because he wasn't speaking truth. You say, well, I don't lie. I just shade the truth. I just stretch the truth. We have some interesting terms, don't we? We don't like to say we lie. We stretch the truth. We tell partial truths. Well, listen, if you add truth to a lie, it doesn't improve it. In fact, if anything, it only makes it more deceptive. Because the most effective lie is a lie that's mingled with truth. We have many forms and phrases. They're all lies. And Paul tells us in this passage, no matter what form they take, we are to put off lying and we are to speak truth. And then he gives us a reason at the end of verse 25. He says, for we are members of one another. 
And he takes us back to what he said in the earlier part of this chapter. We're all in the same body. And see, so we are members of the same body. Now, you wouldn't lie to a member of your body, would you? I mean, you wouldn't be walking down a path and, in the woods and see a stump in the way and say to your foot, it's all clear. <laughs> Why not? Because you'd be hurting yourself. And that's his point here. We are members of the same body. Why would we lie to each other? We need to speak truth. Second area is anger. Verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. That's interesting the way Paul writes that because we would expect him to say, put off anger. But he doesn't say that. He says, be angry but don't sin. Which tells me that there's a difference between anger and sin. There is a righteous anger. In fact, in the Old Testament, the phrase, the anger of the Lord, is used at least 18 times. And in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, we read this about Jesus. It says, He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. God gets angry. And God has placed that emotion inside of us. And so it's okay to get angry. But we have to examine our anger in light of the reason why we're angry. And we also have to examine our anger in the light of how we're dealing with that anger. Aristotle said anyone can become angry. But it's not easy to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way. There's a right way and a wrong way to be angry. See, righteous anger is when I'm angry because God's honor is at stake. When I'm angry at sin and its effects, that's righteous anger. And there are many examples of that in Scripture. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he came to the camp of the Israelites and it says he looked on and he saw that they had made a golden calf and they were bowing down to it and they were dancing around it. And in Exodus 32, 19, it says, Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets down and shattered them. He took the golden image, he melted it down, he put it in their water, and he made them drink it. Now, he was pretty angry. But that was righteous anger. God's honor was at stake. God's will and God's word were being disobeyed by God's people. In 1 Samuel chapter 11, the Ammonites surrounded Jabesh-Gilead. And so the people of Jabesh-Gilead decided they were going to make a covenant with Nahash, the Ammonite leader. And he said, all right, I'll agree to the covenant, but as part of the covenant, I'm going to come in and I'm going to gouge the right eye out of everyone that lives in Jabesh-Gilead. And they said, well, you better give us a little time to think about that. So they asked for a week. And in the course of that week, Saul heard about it. And here's what the Bible says in 1 Samuel eleven six. It says, The Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. Now, that's interesting. The Spirit of God came upon him, and what was the result? He became very angry. The fruit of the Spirit is anger. You ever heard that one? Spirit comes, he's angry. Why? That's righteous anger, obviously. He's angry because God's honor is at stake. God's people are being threatened. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, we need to be a little more angry than we are. 
at the right things. In fact, Jude said in Jude 23, we're to hate even the garment polluted by the flesh. We're to hate sin, we're to hate even the garment associated with it. If we had that response, we might look at our own lives and find a little more holiness there than we find now. We need righteous anger. There's another example in Scripture. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 20 where it says that Saul was at the dinner table with his son Jonathan and he took the spear and threw it at them. Now they must have had a big table because he missed. But in 1 Samuel 20, 34, it says, Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger. Now that's a classic example of what we're going to read later in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 where it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And that's righteous anger because God's honor was really at stake because God's authority was being abused. Now there's also unrighteous anger. That's the anger Paul speaks about in our passage in verse 31 when he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you. That anger that is unrighteous. And we have many examples of that in Scripture as well. In Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son comes home. And we're told in verse 28 that his older brother became angry. Why? He was jealous. That's unrighteous anger. His honor was at stake. When Nebuchadnezzar made his golden image and found out that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego had not bowed down, Daniel 3.13 says he was filled with rage and anger. Why? Because of his pride. That's unrighteous anger. His honor was at stake. Most of us are familiar with the story of Jonah. God called him to go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. God eventually turned him around in the belly of a fish. He came to Nineveh. He preached. All of Nineveh repented. But if you read the last chapter of Jonah, chapter 4 and verse 1, it begins with these words, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Why? Because he didn't get things his way. Selfishness. And that's unrighteous anger. His honor was at stake. You want to analyze your anger and find out if it's unrighteous, you can usually look at what your little voice is saying inside. If you're saying things like, you can't do that to me. I've got my rights. That's unrighteous anger. You see, unrighteous anger happens because you have decided that you matter. And some of us need to reevaluate that presupposition. Because that is based on selfishness. See, our problem with anger is usually we decide that we have certain rights and we establish those rights. And then if someone steps on one of our rights, we explode. But let me suggest this to you. That you redefine your rights in light of God's truth. I.e., you renew your mind. So that you say, well, maybe I was claiming a right that God really hadn't given me. Maybe I am not the center of the universe. And everybody else's job is to make my life as convenient as possible. Maybe I could give up some of those rights, and when I give up those rights, then nobody can step on them anymore, so I don't have to explode. That's unrighteous anger. But let me ask you this. Even when you're angry with righteous anger, how do you deal with it? What do you do? You know, Thomas Jefferson said, When angry, count to ten before you speak. If very angry, a hundred... 
Mark Twain said, when angry, count four. When very angry, swear. And someone else has just said, angry, anger is so frustrating, it makes me mad. How do we deal with it? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, there's an interesting principle, especially if you're married. Don't go to bed mad. Now, why is he saying that? Because anger, when it's in your life, doesn't just sit still. It moves on. And it develops into resentment and bitterness and slander. And so Paul is saying, if you've got anger... You need to deal with it. Don't let the sun set on your anger because if you let it, let it stew, if you let it boil, it will become worse in the future. So you've got to deal with it today. Suppose I walk by and I see a, a Christian slapping a child for no apparent reason. I would be angry. And that would be righteous anger. But if I don't deal with that situation, that... Righteous anger will become resentment and possibly slander or hatred or all kinds of other things. You see, I have to deal with it. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, do what? Go to your brother. I don't go home and sleep on it and think about how bad he is. I go to him. I resolve that thing. And that's what Paul is telling us here. When we're angry... We need to deal with it before the sun sets on our anger because it's going to develop into something worse. And then he gives us a reason, and that reason is spelled out in verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. When you get angry and you don't deal with it, you are giving the devil an opportunity. James 1.20 says, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Unresolved anger throws the door wide open for Satan to come and exploit you. He wants to take that anger and turn it into something worse. What's interesting is that the name devil literally means slanderer. And what he wants to do on this occasion is find you with unresolved anger and come in and exploit you in such a way that he produces that very slandering in your life that is characteristic of his. third thing Paul tells us in this passage deals with stealing. Verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no more. Now, stealing can take many forms as well. It can take the form of shoplifting. In fact, uh, in in some, some places, a third of the price of items is based on the fact that shoplifting occurs. You can steal your employer's time. You can falsify expense accounts. You can cheat on your income tax. In fact, I just read about an individual, Philip Capella, who won the New Hampshire lottery, $2.7 million. He's now in court because he wasn't satisfied with that. He decided to rent 200,000 losing scratch-off tickets to claim his losses on his income tax. And he's now facing four years in jail for that. We can steal by not being honest on our income tax. In a recent poll in Money Magazine, 32% of Americans said 
that if they made $2,000 in sideline work, they would not report it to the IRS. Paul says we're to put off stealing. And then he gives us a positive exhortation in the middle of verse 28. He says, but rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good. Take those same hands that stole and use them to work for what is good. And then he gives a reason. It's very interesting. The end of verse 28, he says, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Now, that's pretty revolutionary. You would expect Paul to say, put off stealing, put on working so you'll have enough money that you won't be tempted to steal anymore. That's not what he says. He says, put off stealing, instead work so that you'll have something to give to those who have need. You see, the Lord turns the burglar into a benefactor. He tells us to put off taking and actually put on giving the positive side of our life. Fourth area he deals with is corrupt speech in verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Now the word unwholesome is literally rotten. And it refers to unkind, vulgar words which are therefore useless. They don't produce anything good. And Paul says we're to put off that kind of speech. Now Jesus told us an interesting thing about our speech in Matthew 12, 34. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. And as a Christian, I have a new heart. So I ought to have a new mouth. I ought to have new speech. And Paul gives us three characteristics of our new speech in verse 29. First of all, he says, but only such a word as is good for edification. Every word that comes out of my mouth ought to build other people up. Proverbs 12, 18 says, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Words are powerful. Words can be like a sword that stabs someone or it can be like a medicine that brings healing. We always hear that little saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's hogwash. Words are powerful. And the question I ought to be asking myself is, do my words leave people wounded or healed? Do my words build people up or do they tear people down? I'm to put on edifying language. Second thing he tells us about it is that it's to be appropriate in the middle of verse 29, according to the need of the moment. Before you speak, before a word comes out of your mouth, you might want to ask yourself, is what I'm about to say really necessary? Does it really meet a need in this person's life? Is it appropriate? And if it's not, then maybe we ought to be silent. You know, one of the most sobering things I think that Jesus ever said was in Matthew 12, 36. He said, every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. Every careless word. Is it necessary what I'm about to say? And then the third thing he tells us about our new speech is at the end of verse 29, he says that it may give grace to those who hear. It's gracious. Ask yourself, is my speech 
gracious? Does it minister grace to those who hear it? You know, one of, one of the amazing things about Jesus was not just His character and His miracles. Luke chapter 4 and verse 22 tells us it was His words. It says, And all who were speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. Jesus spoke gracious words. And here Paul tells us we're to put off unwholesome words. We are to put on gracious, necessary, edifying words. And then notice what he adds in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now notice in this passage, behind our actions are two invisible persons. Verse 27 identifies one as the devil, and verse 30 identifies the other as the Holy Spirit. Here we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The word grieve means to make sorrowful, to fill with pain. The Holy Spirit is sensitive, and you can grieve Him. Now, that tells us two obvious things about the Holy Spirit. Number one, it tells us He's a person. He's not an influence or a force. He's a person who has feelings who can be grieved. Secondly, it tells us that He loves us. Because only a person who loves can be grieved. And how is it that you and I grieve the Holy Spirit? What is it that fills Him with sorrow? Well, I think it's pretty obvious from the context that it's when we don't exchange the old for the new. When we're not putting off the old and putting on the new, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. When He sees lying in your life instead of truth, when He sees unrighteous anger instead of righteous anger, when He sees stealing instead of working and sharing, when He hears rotten language instead of gracious, edifying language, He is grieved. He is hurt by that. And notice what Paul says about the Holy Spirit here. It's very interesting in verse 30. He says, "...by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption." And that word sealed, we spoke about back in chapter 1 and verse 13. It it speaks of ownership and security. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. That is, He has guaranteed our preservation. He sealed us on the day of salvation for the day of redemption. That's the day when Christ returns. Now, that's interesting because those who argue that a Christian can lose his salvation say that if a Christian knew he was saved forever, he would run right out and sin. But what Paul does here is he says, you are saved and you are secure. And for that reason, that's the very motivation that you ought to obey him. See, what I love about this is that we as Christians are not motivated by fear. God doesn't say, if you don't do this, I'm going to take away your salvation. What he says is, you're sealed, you're secure, you're preserved. But I want to motivate you by love because when you don't do what I ask you to do, You bring sorrow to the heart of God. And see, my motive is not that God's going to change His mind and judge me. My motive is that I love God so much that I don't want to do anything that would hurt Him, anything that would bring pain to His heart. Well, then he mentions a fifth area. I've simply called it bitterness in verses 31 and 32. Notice verse 31. Let all... Bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Now, Paul lumps quite a few words in there together. They're all rather similar. Bitterness is that smoldering resentment 
that causes a person to brood and hold a grudge. Aristotle defined it as an embittered and resentful spirit that refuses to be reconciled. And the root word in the Greek, just as the root word in the English, has the idea of something very distasteful, something bitter. That's where we get the, the word a sourpuss from. This is a person who has a settled unwillingness to forgive. Second thing he mentions is wrath. That's passionate rage. That's the explosion on the outside of the feelings on the inside. It's hot outbursts. It's temper tantrums. Anger is the word we already looked at. It means the initial response of hostility. Clamor means the violent outburst of a person who completely loses his temper. Describes people that get so excited in an argument that they scream at each other in public. Clamor. It's verbal brawling. Slander is speaking evil of others, especially behind their back. Defaming other people by insulting and abusive speech. And the word malice is kind of the intention behind it all. Malice means to wish evil against other people. It's to desire the very worst for somebody else. And Paul says we are to put all of that off. And what are we to put on? He tells us in verse 32, and be kind to one another. The word kind means useful. It's the idea of unselfishly spending yourself for the welfare of others. It's a readiness to be helpful even at great personal sacrifice. We're to be kind. That's a word used of God in Luke 6.35. It says, He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. God was kind even to the people described in verse 31, the people that we used to be. And then he says the second thing we're to put on is that we are to be tender-hearted. That is, we're to be filled with compassion and caring, feeling the needs of others. We are to put off a hot head and we're to put on a tender heart. And then finally he tells us we're to put on Forgiveness. We're to forgive each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. We're to forgive. We're to lay aside the desire for retaliation and we're to pardon the offenses of others. And Paul leaves us with the reason at the end there. He says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. God is our example. And when did God forgive you? Well, Jesus was still hanging on the cross with the nails still in His hands and His feet and the people still mocking when He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So if I'm going to forgive just like He did, when do I forgive you? Do I forgive you when you come crawling on your hands and knees and beg me to? No. I forgive before you even realize what you've done wrong. I forgive just as God has forgiven me. And notice something else. It says, God in Christ has forgiven you. And there's the cost of His forgiveness. It was costly. He gave His Son. And I would say to you that if you're going to follow His example and you're going to forgive others, it will probably be costly for you as well. But then notice something else. He doesn't say, just as God in Christ is going to forgive you. He says, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. See, I don't get forgive other people to get God to forgive me. 
I forgive other people because God has already forgiven me. One of my teachers used to say that every time somebody commits an offense against you, it's an opportunity for you to celebrate your forgiveness by forgiving them. It's a wonderful opportunity to remind me of how much God has forgiven me and to take that opportunity to share that forgiveness by forgiving them. If anybody ought to be able to forgive, it ought to be a believer who's been forgiven everything. And then I'd like you to notice one final thing here. He says, we are to forgive just as God forgave. You say, well, that's a pretty high standard. We're to forgive just like God did. Well, you see, the point of this passage is that God has already given you the capability to do that. Because back in verse 24, He says He's created this new man inside of you, and He is created in the image of God. So what we are putting on are really just the character traits of God, which He has given us the capacity to do because He's placed that new creation inside of each one of us. Well, this is St. Patrick's Day, and some of you have probably dressed appropriately. Let me ask you this morning, how are you dressed spiritually? Are you putting off lying and putting on truthfulness? Are you putting off unrighteous anger and putting on righteous anger? Are you putting off stealing and putting on working and sharing? Are you putting off unwholesome words and putting on gracious, edifying words? Are you putting off bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and malice and putting on kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness? Are you still wearing those old grave clothes? Or are you putting on the Christian's wardrobe? 